on a day that is a low day and you really feel this this inner voice that feels like your true self telling you that you have to do something to fix something and reminding myself that even though it appears that way that that voice is not my inner voice that that voice has been given to me mostly by someone who wants to separate me from my money Hello, and welcome to Equip to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is so worth it. I'm Christina Safran, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Cole Kasdan. She's a writer, performer, and four-time Emmy award-winning television journalist, and she's also written for various publications, including Vice, Time, The New York Times, and many more. She currently teaches at the UCLA Extension Writers Program and recently released an incredible book called What's Eating Us? Women, Food, and the Epidemic of Body Anxiety. Go out and buy it now. In this book, she uses her lived experience with an eating disorder along with her skills as an investigative journalist to really shed light on eating eating disorders and disordered eating in our society. And Cole exposes the flawed systems behind diet and research communities, sheds light on new eating disorder treatments and ways people are working to correct racial disparities in care. I am just so excited for you to listen in as Cole and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. Welcome, Cole. It's so nice to have you here. I am so excited to be here. And after that intro, (laughs) I don't even know what I could say. So thank you for that. But I am thrilled to be having this conversation with you. Well, let's start off at the beginning. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience coming to the realization that you had an eating disorder and your journey to recovery? Well, I don't know if this is, I can only speak to my own experience. So I don't know what it's like for other people. But for me, I knew, you know, like, you know, you have an eating disorder. You know, there's something wrong. For me, I was starving myself, exercising compulsively, and making myself throw up. It was only that last one that I saw as a problem. I didn't really think eating very small amounts was bad. I didn't think exercising for four hours how is exercise bad? Isn't that even better? But the throwing up part, you're in a bathroom, standing over a toilet, your heart's racing, your eyes are watering, you know there is a problem. And I just thought I wasn't sick enough because I wasn't in a hospital. So I was obviously making everything work as far as I was concerned. And late at night, I would take quizzes the that eating disorder treatment centers had. Do you have an eating disorder? And I would like 100% A plus every single one. But still, I thought, you know, maybe one day, but it's fine. And then I met my now husband, who from the beginning was very um, transparent and honest about challenges in his own life. And as we grew closer, I didn't want any secrets with him. And it kind of was the little key in the ignition that got me to admit what was going on and finally get help. But this had been going on at least a decade on and off, at least. Wow. And what did getting help look like for you once you made that decision a decade plus in that you were ready for it? Well, my very first impulse was, oh, now I'm ready to get help. So I will just enter the doors of excellent treatment. 
And I didn't realize how much I would have to investigate what exactly that was. What's the treatment that that helps people? What's the one? What's the one that works? And I thought I had found that by researching cognitive behavioral therapy. I, I found a therapist and I went in to begin a course of treatment. Um, I loved cognitive behavioral therapy in the, you know, ideologically because there wasn't going to be sitting, talking to the therapist, having her get to know me. It was assignments and it's very well suited actually to someone with an eating disorder, <laughs> not just throwing in a good way, but I liked the, oh, it's going to be 20 weeks and we'll meet once a week and I'll have an assignment to do every week and then I'm done and then I'm done. Great. Mm-hmm. So it was harder than that to get treatment. I don't want to gloss over and be too glib about it. But as I look back with, you know, eight, nine, 10 years in the rearview mirror of this, I think I was hesitant. I was terrified, but I was optimistic. Mm. Now you say that it was 10 years in the rearview mirror. Talk to me about recovery and how you define recovery today, especially in a world that is just so affected by diet culture. I mean, it's so individual because of our different lives and how we got here. Um, And because, frankly, no one really has a standard definition of recovery. You know, it makes sense. Oh, if you're not doing the symptoms anymore, if you're not purging, if you're not starving, whatever it was you were doing, right? That's recovery-ish. But it's not the full picture. You know, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because I genuinely wanted to find out if it was possible to feel like a little bit, I don't want to say like a normal person, because every woman I know has some, even if without an eating disorder, right, is has some strained relationship with food and or her body. But I thought, is, is it possible to move through a world where I'm not just a little bit white knuckling this? which is how I had felt like, oh, I'm recovered. I'd had a lot of relapses over the years, but you know, long-term I'm recovered. So I wanted to find out what that would be. And for me to answer your question, it means not doing the symptoms, which aren't, it's not just throwing up, not going on a diet, not restricting food, not giving up gluten, none of that bullshit, no cutting back these little sort of like insidious, nebulous ways that diet culture seeps in. Exercise for me was the toughest because I enjoy exercise. I was a dancer. I can't say that, you know, I'm not going to exercise, but for me, it's redefining that. So I look for new things to try so that I can sort of get ahead of the eating disorder brain. And while she's thinking about calorie burn, I can really be maybe three steps ahead and focusing on something else. So that would be exercising in community or exercising in nature. Or I recently just started weightlifting and I said to the trainer I'm working with, I do not want to talk about leaning out, toning up, getting in shape. I need this to be just lifting heavy shit and putting it down. And that is it. And he's down. Like that's not what his focus usually is, but he's fine. And, and for me, like, lifting something heavy and then two weeks later lifting something heavier. That's if that's where I can put my compulsion and it's a fun kind of challenge and I'm not flexing in front of a mirror, which I'm not, then that is a way to sort of disrupt the exercise compulsion. And then it's reminding myself, and I think this was the this is the trickiest part, on a day that is a low day, and you really feel this this inner voice that feels like your true self, 
telling you that you have to do something to fix something and reminding myself that even though it appears that way, that that voice is not my inner voice, that that voice has been given to me, you know, mostly by someone who wants to separate me from my money. And that conversation with myself now, lying in bed, making coffee, that's a quicker conversation now. So like a year ago, I had to really talk myself through the chapters of my book. (laughs) You know this, you did the research, this industry makes this much money, this is not your voice, there is nothing to fix, your weight is not, right? And and so now it's a quick conversation. It's like it happens in, in a minute. And I know now that the idea of returning to a a different version of myself, a previous version of myself is not the goal that I have to like, look at that to me, I think is the biggest part of recovery when I say, okay, you feel this way about your body or not, but you are perimenopausal mother of a toddler, just finished a book, have a different routine than you've ever had. This is who you are. And this is what the body of that person looks like. End of story. Oh, absolutely. I love, and I know we've had conversations about this before, but so much of what you say so resonates. And, you know, I think I've shared with you that uh, for me, recovering kind of publicly as a 15-year-old, it felt so important to say when so many folks had told me, you will struggle with this forever. When I finally got to that place of, you know, recovery, I was like, oh my God, it's possible. It's worth it. Shout it from the rooftops, recovery, full stop period. And I think I've come to have a lot more humility around the fact that recovery is kind of an active daily journey as we grow older and our bodies change and our lives change, especially in the society that is just so infused with so much diet culture. And so, uh, you know, I think particularly, uh, I think we talked a lot about the exercise component, which I so relate to, um, especially as, you know, when I was in my eating disorder, I was so young that exercise had never been a part of my eating disorder. And so it at first became this like really healthy, empowering coping mechanism and way to burn off steam. And I started lifting weights and felt strong. And then like anything, I have to understand, like, I have a compulsive personality. I like something and then I like really like it. And then I like it like all the time and I want it every day. And so really looking back, like that did become compulsive at places in my own recovery. And I think just having that awareness and humility and frankly, like folks around me, this is why I believe so strongly in the importance of a (sighs) village to be like, hey, you're like getting a little obsessive with this. Like maybe we could take a walk instead of go for a run sort of thing was really, really helpful in enabling me to slow down. And, you know, I've shared with you, I'm I'm in this new chapter of life, going to have a, a kid in two months. And like, I need to be aware that I can, after I have a kid, engage in any of this, like, get your body back, right? Like all the pressure that comes, you know, post having a child, because I know that for my own genetics, going into negative energy deficit is going to put me right back into this circular cascade. But it is something that, you know, we have to grapple with in this world every day. And frankly, for us as, you know, women in more societally acceptable bodies, it's it's frankly probably a lot easier than a lot of people who are not in quote unquote societally acceptable bodies. It's a real uphill battle. Absolutely. And I, I love what you just said about this idea of active recovery because it's a, and again, with the privilege of being in recovery at all, right? Because we have people who aren't diagnosed, who aren't screened, nothing, right? 
But this idea of active recovery as opposed to like the struggle of recovery, I mean, for me, one really valuable thing in the book was learning from the research or lack thereof that my inability to fully recover in the way that I had imagined or hoped was not my fault. It was because there's no standard of care uh, and a whole host of other complex reasons and, and learning that that wasn't my fault, but that active recovery to use your, what you just said, it's not like managing a chronic illness, which I thought it would, that's what active recovery meant. It's not that it's empowering yourself with information, surrounding yourself with a community and just like staying on it. And it gets, it gets quicker that, you know, like you get better at it. And one of the biggest things for me in my recovery has been eating. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes I still don't get hungry. And I now know it's, it sometimes takes me a minute, but I'm quicker. And if I don't get it, my husband, <laughs> if he's near me, he will. I was going to an event for the book and I was in the car and I was just, I shouldn't have worn these shoes. This is the, I should have worn the other shoes. Maybe I should turn around and go back. Like this really like anxiety spiral that was not about shoes at all. And then I thought, wait a minute, when's the last time you ate? Mm. You got a bar in your bag. Let's get that down before mm. you turn your car around to get other shoes. I mean, that's kind of an embarrassing story. I don't even want ridiculous. I love it because it's so honest. And I think so many people with eating disorders will relate to that. Your mind doesn't just spiral about the food and body stuff. It's like, this is a little bit of what our minds do to us. <laughs> so, like eating will help with my anxiety. Yeah. And yeah. that connection has been so valuable. And it's sometimes it is forcing yourself to eat something small just to get you to the next place of having an actual meal, but realizing and recognizing when my mind starts to do some certain things, that's because I need to eat and I might not be hungry. I love that you share that. And I also love, and this goes into like how recovery is so different for every person. Cause I think some folks would say like the pinnacle of recovery is intuitive eating. And I think like for some people that's awesome. And for others, like that's not always possible. And sometimes you just need to know, Hey, like I had a life-threatening mental illness in which my medicine is food, even when I'm not hungry, even when I don't want it. Could you just like touch a little bit more on getting to that place of being okay with like that more mechanical eating, I guess. It's something that I learned in researching the book. It was not a tool I had before researching the book. Um, it was interviewing Laura Hill, who was one of the people who developed temperament-based therapy with supports, which really helped me. Learning about that therapy really helped me. And speaking with a dietitian who both, they don't know each other, but they both told me when I interviewed them that it was very important to eat every three to four hours, which is kind of what you hear even in the diet culture world, right? So that's so tricky. And, <laughs> and Dr. Hill told me to set a timer. She wasn't treating me. I had to try, I tricked her into a little bit treating me, but she wasn't officially <laughs> treating me. I was like, let's meet again next week. Um, but she said to set a timer and every three to four hours to eat something. And I really resisted that idea because for me, it, it reminded me of the way I would plot out my life when I had the eating disorder, 
with meal planning and all the like my fitness pal bullshit that I just had to like burn to the ground when I went into recovery. So, so I didn't like this idea. And she said, just try it. And what it did is it helped, you know, it helped get hunger back a little bit sometimes. It doesn't always happen, but I experience hunger now. I didn't like the idea of eating that frequently. If I forgot to eat, wasn't that great? Uh, and all I, all these like little deep tissue residual eating disorder things still in my body. And the mechanical eating really helped me. And it was really hard not to think about, it was a meal plan that's not about losing weight. And a meal plan that actually, not that it doesn't have anything to do with your body, because of course it does, but a meal plan that was about sustaining your mental health. Mm. Like I would never before writing this book and researching this book have thought that eating would help my anxiety. Yeah. I mean, that's counter to, you know, you people would say, oh, but don't eat because of your anxiety, you know, all that. Yeah. Eating, having some calories helps my anxiety. Yeah, 100%. And we see something similar that's so hard for families and I think patients to grapple sometimes where we say, I know that your number one fear is weight gain and nutritional rehabilitation is what we talk about at Equip. And it is actually the number one thing that is going to help with body image, like counterintuitively, when you gain more weight, like you care less about your body image. Um but it's a really hard concept to explain to people that like being nourished and being at a place of full weight restoration, you actually end up feeling better. It helped me a lot too. sort of peripherally. I realized this later when I uh, started working on my book, I had my son was probably a month or two old and I was just starting feeding him you know, when you're about four or five months, you start feeding them solid foods and or applesauce, whatever. And then they they grow up and you have to feed them five times a day. (laughs) He's two and a half now. And you're, I'm feeding this this kid five times a day. And sometimes he doesn't want to eat what I prepared. So I'm just throwing crackers at the situation. And the idea is that he just needs to eat. He just needs to eat. And I try to eat as nutrient rich, whatever is possible. Broccoli is not going to happen. Sometimes it's a lot of crackers. And seeing that when you have a child, you are keeping them alive. Part of that is giving them calories. (laughs) And if you're someone with an eating disorder or a history of an eating disorder, any form of disordered eating, and your child notices you're not eating just because you're like genuinely maybe not hungry in that moment. And your child tells you, you you know, would you like a cracker? Just like, I got it. We got to eat the crackers together. We got to Keep, you know, and you start to think more about, oh, food keeps you alive. Food is not about your body or how it shows up on your body or any of that stuff. Food is to keep you alive, to keep you healthy, to give you energy, all this like, you know, first grade health class stuff. Yeah, I love that. Well, talk to me about why did you decide to write this book and particularly open this book with the dedication of it's for every woman with a body. So why did you decide to write the book and why is it important for you to focus on women and feminism in your book in particular? Well, I decided to write the book a few years before I I had thought about the idea. I had talked to a couple editors just very casually, but I didn't want to think about my eating disorder for the length of time it takes to write a book. That did not interest me. And then I realized (laughs) I was thinking about this stuff anyway, and I didn't feel fully better. And I didn't expect to, I was fine. 
as far as I thought. I didn't have any aspirations for any more of a recovery than I had. But I started reporting uh, shorter stories about the eating disorder inequities, about the problems with recovery for various freelance outlets I would write for and or for various outlets I would write for as a freelancer. And as I started like building the journalism on this and really realizing the scope of the problem, it was less about me trying to solve something in my own life and more about ringing an alarm for a mental illness that nobody is really talking about, that research dollars aren't really going to. What the fuck? So the book became urgent. I dedicated the book to women and focused on women because a lot of the, a lot of the book is personal and my lived experience is as a woman. So I can speak directly to that. I know that, I mean, the numbers on men getting eating disorders, who really knows, right? Those numbers, I think everyone agrees, are larger than the official statistics. I don't know how up-to-date statistics on non-binary folks are with eating disorders, but the little research there is, we know that those folks are, are really suffering from eating disorders as well. The statistics I had were that women are affected twice as much as men. And, and for me, I think this is often a missing piece in feminist discourse because in part, there's so much else to talk about, like maternal mortality and reproductive rights and equal pay still somehow. And, and so we don't talk about food or body as much as I think we should. And when we do, those conversations are usually owned by the diet industry, the weight loss industry. And every woman I know talks about this stuff. And even someone without a history of an official, whatever that means, eating disorder, every woman I know talks about this. So I thought if we can get information to empower us to move this conversation forward, then we would have some tools to change this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think this is part of the part of the reason recovery is so hard, right? Because you do the things and you do the work and you may be like the symptoms can abate and go away, but then you're entered into this culture that it's just so eating disordered and everything that your eating disorder used to be saying to you is so normalized by the society and the culture. And if we don't start talking about it, you know, what hope does that give people to really reach a place of, of true and lasting recovery? Um, what was maybe your biggest surprise in writing the book? That I could get better than I was before I wrote the book. Mm. I was. I love that. I there was not a lot of hope in the book proposal, and I think you know early on in doing some early research as I was writing it, I said to my editor, "I think this book might have some hope at the end." <laughs> she was like, "That would be great." <laughs> she's very passionate about the subject matter so she wasn't speaking purely strategically but I let myself go into this I wanted to be transparent about all my own flaws in my own recovery and all my own struggles you know beginning to write the book I really would have if someone said you know you could lose 10 pounds if you just start you know when I started writing the book I would have been like hey, that would be cool if I kind of like accidentally lose 10 pounds while I embrace my recovery. You know, I don't feel that way anymore. I, I genuinely 
no longer feel that way. And that is insane to me. That is, that is exciting to me. And so I just didn't think I could, I just didn't think I would get any, any better, but I am so much better than I was before I wrote the book. And I hope that the book can be that for people, you know, like everyone's different. So everyone has a different experience, but I hope it can at least plant a seed um, and to give hope and to give hope. Well, and I think that's a really nice parlay into my next question, which is around, you know, your thoughts on how the eating disorder landscape can best equip folks for long-term recovery and sort of what, what treatments, what innovations, what things did you hear about that you're most excited about that gave you the most hope? Well, I'm, I'm really excited about community-based treatment. You know, obviously family-based treatment has been used for a while to some really good success. Um, there are some couples treatments that used a lot of the family-based ideas, but for adults in an appropriate way for an adult. I'm really excited about temperament-based therapy with supports because I think it's a really individualized treatment that can really help people. Um, and we, we still need, there's still so far to go. There are some really basic things that I think that we need, like a standard of care. I would love to see an eating disorder screening in every doctor's visit, just like you do with the depression screening, two questions. I think one of the reasons they don't do that screening is because if they did, the whole system would fall apart because of the sheer numbers. Um, but I'm excited about the brain research. I'm excited about some researchers starting to, it's hard to get funding for this, unfortunately, but starting to research trauma, everyday racism, look at some of the all of the huge racial inequities and, and last some of the work around harm reduction, sort of like redefining what recovery could look like for someone um, and the meeting them where they are idea instead of kind of forcing an idea of recovery. But there's a lot that I'm looking forward to, you know, there's a lot to be excited about. There's a lot to be excited about. Maybe one that some of the listeners might be less familiar with is temperament-based treatments with supports. Can you say a little bit more about that work and, and what excites you so much about it? Yeah, it's, you know, eating disorders we know are so complex, right? So for some of the, some people, it might just be no predisposition and a traumatic event or events kind of prompted these behaviors. But the brain research is really exciting to me because I think for a lot of people, it is brain-based and also family trauma, all the things, right? But temperament-based treatment uh, with supports, and I keep saying the with supports because they really build in the idea that community, whatever that is for you, a partner, a friend, family, clergy, whatever that is, is a part of treatment. So number one, that is huge because you don't see that in all therapies. And they really look to your individual traits and identify them and see how you can kind of use the powers for good, right? So for me, I'll give an example just to clarify because it's going to be different for everyone. But one of the traits um, I discovered in doing these questionnaires was my determination, right? So in the past, my determination was really useful in my eating disorder. I had a really strong, well, I did not need to eat. I could make myself do whatever. I was very determined. Now, I thought my determination could be a positive quality, like in my work, I wrote a book. Look how determined I am. 
Laura Hill looked at my determination as diff- as something different. She said, instead, use your determination to get to other tools that you can use to get you out of a moment before a relapse. I never would have thought of it in that way. And we go through some tools that are, again, individual to me, unique to my history and my life. and whatever. But the, her idea was use determination to get yourself out of the chair and move and grab the other tools. I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was brilliant. And I use that even in a, in a low moment where I think, okay, I got to start using some of the tools from, from Laura that we went over, like, wait a minute, get up. This is where your determination comes in. And it really helps me. I mean, I, two weeks ago, I don't even know what the issue was, but I, I was using the tools again. I was using the tools. And again, the more you do it, the quicker you get to it. And it's that word that you used, active recovery, because this is what I think is the biggest flaws in some of the more traditional cognitive-based therapy. I know I pick on cognitive-based therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy helped me a lot. But one of the biggest flaws is that you're out in the world with nothing. Yeah, You really, you got nothing. And for someone with an eating disorder, you can't have like a write in your journal. I mean, that's nice to write in your journal, but that's not like throwing up or starving, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. something that you could experience, like a feeling of power, and a little high even for me. So writing in my journal was not going to be comparable to that. The temperament-based idea is to use the stuff that fuels you, your traits. And so I just find it really, really promising. I hope it can get to where it needs to be as quickly as possible if it can help people, you know peer reviewed, you know, instead of just kind of practiced in corners, because you want to get the research to the people who need it as fast as you can, if it works. It's so incredibly empowering and hopeful. And I definitely talk a lot about, you know, how the temperament traits that make you vulnerable to an eating disorder really can be channeled in the right direction. Whereas we used to, you know, make people think that this dictated them to a lifetime of suffering. It's like, no, take those traits for me, take this drive, this determination, this inability to hear no, and like, turn it into starting, you know, two awesome companies, not having an eating disorder. And I think that's so many of the stories that we hear. And we will be utilizing temperament-based treatments with supports uh, in our work uh, as we expand to the adult population at Equip, which we're, which we're super excited about. Just the idea of using your own traits is there's hope inherent in that because it's not like you have to change your whole personality to recover, which is how I felt so often in treatment. You have to change every rule you have, everything you know, every way you're working. And so you don't feel like yourself. And so what I really liked about temperament-based treatment is that there's this inherent, maybe acceptance, yeah, but just also really embracing who you are as an individual. And that is hopeful. I couldn't agree more. I love that. I also want to talk about how much this field coexists with the weight loss field. Uh, In your book, you write about finding out that one of your former providers was involved in weight loss treatment. And I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about like that realization, how it affected you, and, and just your general thoughts around how common it is that eating disorder treatment and weight loss treatment coexist at the same time. Yeah, this was a big one for me. This, um, I looked up my therapist when I was writing, you know, the last chapter of the book. So this, we, we didn't keep in touch. I just looked her up 
And I found out that she is affiliated with a weight loss program and treating patients uh, for eating disorders. Even talking about it now, I'm like, well, it, it just leveled me. It leveled yeah. me because I think, especially for me, I'll only speak again to my experience, but when you go into treatment with an eating disorder, you can't really trust your instincts because your instincts, I didn't get hungry. So if I listened to my body, I wouldn't eat. So the buy-in is trust your therapist completely. Mm-hmm. And even when it feels like something she's saying is not great or harmful, sometimes it is. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes she's right, you know? So for me, it just felt like it was, it felt personal. It felt like a betrayal because we talked about, you know, on like graduation day, you know, you're never going to diet again, never restrict foods, all, you know? And as a journalist, I wanted to make sure that, you know, this was personal for me. So I wanted to talk to other people and say, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just sensitive. And there are some great ways that eating disorder treatment and weight loss can coexist together. It doesn't make sense to me, but someone help me out. And um, so I went back to a lot of my sources and they were like, no, this is bad. (laughs) This is bad. But the more I researched this, it's ubiquitous. You see a lot of like such and such universities, Center for Eating Disorder and Obesity Treatment. Like I, I just... I don't understand. You feel very like emperor's new clothes about it. Like what is, how do you, so these, they coexist everywhere. They coexist everywhere. And what I don't understand is what, what I believe is that the study of the so-called obesity epidemic directly undermines eating disorder progress. It sabotages it. It just sabotages it. And obesity always wins. The obesity research always wins. And I really believe that our focus on so-called obesity research is why we haven't gotten as far with eating disorder research. I mean, the money that eating disorder that eating disorder research gets compared to obesity. I mean, they're not even in the same. I, I think the inherent message for folks is like gain weight, but not too much you know, stop here, like, up to a certain point, you know, honor your hunger and honor your fullness. And, you know, but only up until a certain point. And that is harmful for everybody. I mean, it's certainly helpful for folks in larger bodies who are not only being missed and not diagnosed, but literally prescribed eating disorders, the same behaviors that I did as a smaller body teenager, many folks are getting prescribed by doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, But for all of us in recovery, this, you know, but but don't go too far. Um, It inherently limits the potential of recovery. Because the idea is, don't gain weight, don't get fat, you'll get Mm -hmm. a chronic disease, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I would love to see obesity researchers just take a year off and switch their study to trauma of everyday racism and how it is associated with chronic illness. I would love to just see every single person drop what they're doing and, and do that for a year and just see what it looks like, you know, because there is so much weight stigma, fat phobia in all of this. And that directly impacts anyone who wants to heal from their eating disorder. And 
Final question, perhaps, is what changes do you want to see in the eating disorder fields in the next five years? Well, the one change that would be so cool is some sort of standard of care. Because right now, as we're having this conversation, someone is riding a horse to cure their eating disorder, right? Like, and wanting to get better. So you shouldn't just be able to hang up a shingle and say that you treat eating disorders. Someone else is getting weight loss treatment, right? (laughs) Someone else is getting weight loss treatment. So I think some sort of regulation or standard of care or both would be great. And I think other than that, it really comes down to research dollars, which, you know, federal funding, I would love to see more federal funding for eating disorders. If eating disorders could get more than back pain research, that would be fantastic. I think also kind of adjacent to the eating disorder field, I would love to see um, federal regulations around weight discrimination, you know, adding that to civil rights legislation. I think that would be important to really sort of change some of the legal framework so that you can't be fired for being a certain weight. Like that, I think, connects directly to how we view eating disorders. So standard of care, research dollars, a screening tool when you go to the doctor, that one I would that one I would love. I don't know what those two questions would be so that everyone doesn't say yes to them, but maybe everyone says yes to them and then there's, they somehow can get help. But I also think that if we can, what you're doing, not only with Equip, but with this podcast, if we can talk about it more and people who are in a position to share their own experiences because it is in the rearview mirror and we can talk about it, um, help someone feel less alone, get a little loud about it, demand better treatments. I do believe that has an impact. Yeah, I absolutely do too. And I'm hearing, I think it needs to be a a combination of like top-down systematic changes with bottom-up storytelling, activism, culture changing, and that's how we will really get there. And I, I agree with you. I'm hopeful. There's a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of exciting stuff coming down the pipeline, and I'm feeling really hopeful. Yeah, a lot of people doing a lot of great work. And that's really something to be hopeful about. Well, it has been such a pleasure having you here, Cole. I have a couple more quick questions before we wrap it up. I would love for you to finish the statement with your first thought. Connection is? Compassion. Body image is? A moving target. Diet culture is? Killing us. Recovery is? My first impulse was to say possible, but... I think it is possible, but that sounds a little pat. A group effort. Hmm. Possible and a group effort. I like that. What words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those recovery warriors who are going into their battle with eating disorders every single day? You know, I think about what I would have wanted to hear when I was in it and, um, And the answer is nothing, (laughs) right? And so I always want to speak to that person, you know, but maybe you can't speak to that person, the person who's at that place, right? So I would say to someone who's in it, going through it, wants to get help, isn't sure if they want to get help. I want to say the reason maybe that you don't want to get help is because it's not apparent what the help is and you might not Mm. trust it. And you are right not to trust it. 
but it doesn't mean there aren't people out there who can help you. It's, it's not hard because it's you. It's hard because there are systems in place that make it seem impossible. And there's so much bad treatment out there, but you can find treatment. You get it when you're ready. If you know someone who is suffering, which are the people you really kind of can talk to, do all your vetting and all your homework and all your research for the person you love. And when they're ready, which might be in six weeks or six years or 10 years, you know, we, we all hope they're going to be okay, but let them do it. Let them take their time. You have all the information. You can help, help them really point, point them in the right direction. But it's lonely. There are so, 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 so many of us. There are so, so, so many of us. And that's too bad, but it's good. It's good because we can help each other. How can all the listeners stay in touch with you? They can follow me on Instagram. And I'm not just saying that to get followers. They can, people can, people DM me all the time about what they're going through. And I will read them and get back to you. And same through my website, which is myname.com. You can message me there and follow my work and what I hope to do more, which is just get louder about this and help people find hope. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for all the incredible work that you have put out into the world to be a voice, a loud voice for recovery. I so appreciate what you do, the difference you're making. It's so needed. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at equip.health.